So let's say that you walk into your bedroom and it's just trashed. It's just a mess. You haven't taken care of anything in three weeks and it shows. What is your inclination? Well, on the one hand, you know it needs to be cleaned. On the other hand, it's such a big mess. You want to just give up, maybe sit down on the bed and just feel overwhelmed. And so nothing gets done. So what's the solution to that? The solution is to start small. And it's a good indication of what we mean when we say that there are big problems that need small solutions. Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Chloe Langer, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, Joe Heschmeyer. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you very much, Chloe. Not to start this episode out on a pessimistic note, but to start this episode out on a pessimistic note, there are some big problems in the world. And today we're recording here in the United States on November 6th, which is election day for United States citizens. And so it's even more apparent in, in our minds about the problems that are going on in today's culture. Yeah, I think whether you're talking politics, whether you're talking in the life of the church, whether you're talking in our own lives, in our own communities, in our own homes, even in our own souls, <laughs> there are big problems. There's also this tendency when big problems seem to crop up, whether it's on a national level or even in our personal life, to experience this kind of immobilization and not really wanting to attack the problem in any way, shape, or form and just kind of light a match to it and walk away. Exactly. I mean, when a problem gets to be too large, it becomes so daunting. We we quiver before. We tremble before it like the Israelites before Goliath. And so, you know, what? maybe you're someone who doesn't like to write papers. And so you just stare at Microsoft Word blankly. Or you stare at your computer without even opening Microsoft <laughs> Word. Or you're someone who doesn't like to diet. Or you're someone who, you know, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. These things can feel so frustrating and so overwhelming that what do we do? We end up just getting overwhelmed and we get nothing done. Thinking of an example of this for my own life. So my husband, Joseph, and I are getting ready to move for the third time in two years. And I swear it's not because we're bad renters or because <laughs> we like packing because neither of those are true. But we move in a couple of weeks and I have yet to start packing. And I've fallen into this trap of looking at a big problem, not wanting to solve it at all. And even though I know it's not very easy to move things item by item to a new house, I haven't even started by buying boxes. And so it's easy for me to look around and, you know, think hopefully this will all pack itself and get resolved by the end of the next two weeks. <laughs> Good luck to you exactly. or, or maybe to Joseph. <laughs> maybe Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's an actually, there's, there's a solution to this and a science-driven solution. And it's called micro-progress. And it sounds fancy, but it just means taking baby steps. So uh, Tim Herrera has an article in the Washington Post talking about this. And basically, for any task you have to complete, he says, break it down into the smallest possible units of progress and attack them one at a time. This is the whole reason that we do things like to-do lists. Mm -hmm. It gives us concrete micro-steps, and then it gives us a sense of accomplishment once it's done. So, you know, if you're struggling with writing a paper, maybe you just make a to-do list that says, okay, I'm going to open this document. I'm going to fill in the header. I'm going to save the document. And these are these almost comically small steps. But by the time you do each of them, you find that you're basically off to the races. And I think the same thing's true of packing. You know, maybe you say, okay, today I'm going to pack up just these seasonal items we don't even use right exactly. now. <laughs> Get them out of the way. We're not going to need them for the next two weeks, mm -hmm. etc. 
I mean, I'm not going to tell you how to pack, but you know, that general <laughs> I mean, you idea. You can put this theory to the test, too. You're more than welcome <laughs> to come over and pack for us if you'd like. <laughs> so, but that's that's the general idea behind micro-progress. Mm-hmm. In that article from Tim Herrera, he also quotes another article by James Clear, who analyzes this concept of micro-progress through Newton's Law of Physics, and he writes that when it comes to being productive... This means one thing. The most important thing is to just find a way to get started because once you get started, it's much easier to stay in motion. So if you're in this part where you're like, I crossed two things off the to-do list, you're more than likely to cross that third thing off the to-do list. Yeah, I'm not much of an exerciser, but I can tell you from my own experience or lack thereof that the, the hardest step is the very first one. And, you know, once you've gone 100 meters, the next 100 meters isn't as bad. But getting off the couch and doing the first 100 meters is where the rubber hits the road, as it were. That's, you know, getting started. This is exactly uh, the difficulty. Once you get started, it's relatively easy. And that's what this entire episode is about today. Yep. How do we get started? How do we make these small steps? How do we get in motion? Because it's through these small steps that real change happens. So we've seen how micro-progress can work in our daily lives, whether that's in our career or in exercise or packing our house to move. What about when it comes to our spiritual lives? And how can we use the idea of micro-progress and apply it into growing closer in our relationship and our friendship with Jesus? So one of my favorite theologians of the 20th century was Father Garigou Lagrange, who was actually the advisor for a young um, Carol Wojtyla, the future John Paul II, at the Angelicum. And he has a book, pretty famously, uh, The Three Stages of the Interior Life. And in there, he talks about this theme of predominant fault. Basically, when you look at your soul, Maybe it feels a lot like when you look at a really messy room where you just say, oh my, there are so many things out of order here. I've got so much going wrong in my life right now. And the solution there isn't to try to do everything at once. The, you know, the kind of intuitive answer is, oh, there's 20 problems. We need to get a big solution that solves all 20 right now. And I'm going to tell you that's not going to work. You're going to get overwhelmed, and you're going to have a 21st problem. You're going to just feel like despair. You're going to feel lethargy. You're going to feel just totally overwhelmed by it, and this is not going to get better. And so what do you do? You find what Garigou Lagrange calls your predominant fault. And he says, quote, Predominant fault is the defect in us that tends to prevail over the others, and thereby over our manner of feeling, judging, sympathizing, willing, and acting means two things. Number one, you solve this kind of predominant fault first, and everything else can fall in place much easier. If you find that your life is mostly controlled by pride, that if you look at your life and say, when I sin, I tend to sin for this motive, and it's pride, okay, work on that, Mm -hmm. and you'll find the temptation to a lot of other seemingly unrelated sins will start to dissipate. Or, I find I'm overwhelmingly controlled by the sins of the flesh. Therefore, work on disciplining that and see how many other things seem to almost magically fall into place. But the other thing that it means is that we have good advice from a good theologian to go in baby steps, one area at a time. Don't try to do too much at once because you end up not moving forward. No one just runs a marathon. They run one step at a time. One good way that you can go about finding your predominant fault, because even that for some is an overwhelming step, is to think back on the times that you've been to confession lately or to do an examination of conscience and to think of the sin that constantly, for me, it's pride. So I can learn a lot from this example. But for me, it's every 
time I go to confession, I have to confess pride. It's something that I'm constantly working on getting to the bottom of. And so thinking back on that examination of conscience can bring up that predominant fault with a lot of ease. And you know what? I think that's a really good tip for a lot of people. Because if you're not in the regular daily habit of having like a nightly examination mm-hmm. of conscience, if you're not in the regular habit of going to confession frequently, monthly or more, then you're probably not going to have a very good idea what is even wrong. It's like uh, with my car. I'll hear a troubling sound, but because I don't want to go to the mechanic, it just is check engine lights on. Yeah. Huh, that's, that's not good. <laughs> That doesn't look like a good sign. But without ever going and finding out, hey, what's actually wrong here? Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm making the problem worse. You know, if right. if you're hearing a grinding noise and it turns out you just need more oil, just get more <laughs> oil, you know. But right. so much in our spiritual life, mm-hmm. we are afraid to even do an examination of conscience. We're afraid to go to confession. We're afraid to admit our faults to God, to ourselves, to the priest. And as a result, when it comes to how can I get a little better... We don't even know where to begin because we don't even know where the problems are. So that really is, I think, a foundational step. Right. Know yourself and practice self-awareness on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So there's problems going on in our own life, in every person's life, because we're all messy. There's also problems going on in the Catholic Church at large. And our very first podcast episode that we recorded really highlighted these, but you have problems of Catholics leaving the church. You have problems of Catholics in the pew not believing what the church even teaches, You have problems of Catholics who are in the pew really struggling with having that daily deep interior awareness or that daily deep friendship with Christ. And it's tempting to see all these problems as something that it's so big, like you said before, there has to be this one solution to solve it all. But we also also should find this solution from, we should find it from the clergy or the church needs to come up with a solution to all these these problems. So why is that not the answer? Yeah, so I think, I mean, kind of recapping what you just said. In the face of big problems within the church and within the world, our gut impulse is to either say, this needs a program or this needs a professional. Mm -hmm. Someone who's got a collar or a title or a job has to fix this. And as you mentioned at the start of the episode, this is election day. And I think we really fall into that problem in politics as well. We need to get the right policymakers and Mm -hmm. the right laws and then everything will just be okay. And that's, I would say, not a very realistic um, understanding of humanity. That most problems are neither caused nor fixed by law. Which is not to say the law doesn't have a role. It's just to say we can't ignore our role in all of this. In making the world a better or a worse place. So the example I would give for the church is of the Easter Vigil. Okay, if you've never been to the Easter Vigil, here's the scene I want to paint for you. You've got this large church... And it's in darkness. And everyone has a candle. And these candles are unlit. And the priest comes in and he has a large candle called the Paschal Candle representing the light of Christ. Now what happens next? If we were to expect the priest to do all of it himself, we would expect him to go individually one by one and lighting everybody's candle. And the church would never get lit. Mm -hmm. I mean, by the time he finished getting a third of the people's, other candles would be done or they would be burnt out or they would have blown out. But no, instead, he lights a handful of candles and has those people light a handful of other people's candles. And those people light a handful of other ones. And very, very quickly, the entire church is aglow with the light of Christ. 
Now, think about where we find ourselves now. There are people, maybe even people listening, who don't have the light of Christ in their life, who don't have that kind of living relationship. There are other people who've received it. Someone has lit their candle. Someone has passed on the faith to them. But maybe uh, you've never shared the faith with anyone else. Maybe you've never formed anyone else. Maybe you've never talked to anyone else about the importance of Jesus in your life. And so, in other words, your candle has been lit, but you're not lighting anybody else's. Even though you're surrounded, chances are, by people with unlit candles. And so the solution is very simple. You are not going to light everyone's candle mm -hmm. in the church any more than the priest is. You're not going to. But if all of us light a few people's candles, we can revolutionize the church, we can revolutionize the world. Right. And I think this is really emphasized when you talk to people who have converted or even people who have experienced the new evangelization where their faith has been reignited in Catholicism is that they're not going to probably tell you about their programs that they experienced in their church and how they were so great. They'll probably tell you about a personal experience that they had with someone who invested in them and walked them through um, the importance of the faith in their own life. And that's what sparked their interest. Exactly. So when we think about well, what do we need to do in the face of all these problems? We tend to say either father should do something mm -hmm. or we say we need a program. But when you talk to people about their own journey into or back into or deeper into Catholicism, it tends to be that someone invested in them deeply. Sometimes that person's a priest, mm -hmm. but not always. In fact, frequently it's just a regular lay person with no particular expertise, no particular degree, no particular title but who had two things, a love for Jesus and a love for this other person. And if you have those two things, you can transform the world person by person. So the real solution that we find is, is like you said, it's not a program, it's a mission. And even more so than that, it's a way of life that we're living on a constant daily basis. And really the best model for this way of life is given to us by Jesus. So what example of discipleship do we see in the Gospels? So... Luke 22 at the Last Supper. This is a passage that I'm fond of, so I'm positive we've mentioned it more than once yep. in this uh, podcast. But Christ is talking about Satan's attack on all 12 of the apostles. And because English doesn't have a U plural, but Southern <laughs> English does, I'm going to do this with a y'all. He says to one of the apostles, Simon, Simon, behold... Satan has desired to sift all y'all. <laughs> Luke would be so proud of this. <laughs> Satan has demanded to have all y'all that he might sift all y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brethren. In other words, all twelve are under demonic attack. One of them has already capitulated. That's a big problem. When you want to talk about big problems in the church, when every member of the church is under demonic attack, it's hard to get a much bigger problem than that. Mm -hmm. And you might expect Jesus to have some big programmatic solution. To say, okay, we designed this program to ward off demonic attack, or here's something for all of the 11 of you to do, or in this case, if you're going to say leave it up to someone with a title, it would seem like we'd just say, Jesus, fix this on your own. Mm -hmm. But what does he do? He prays for Peter, Simon Peter, and then he tells him to strengthen his brethren. 
So he does it through these individual and personal uh, kind of relationships. And it, of course, it changes the whole course of history. The apostles are edified by Peter. He does lead them. And we have the church as we know it today. Right. When you look at Jesus's life, he does minister to crowds. We have the Sermon on the Mount. We have the miracle of loaves and fish when he's ministering to thousands of people and feeding them both spiritually um, and physically. But when you look at a bulk of how he spends his time, it's one-on-one with Peter, one-on-three with a few chosen, the 12, the 72, and then it kind of waterfalls down. Exactly. So I think when we talk about the need for lay people to step up and evangelize, this is often understood in the context of the shortage of priestly vocations. The idea is sometimes like, well, we lay people have to do it because Father's too busy because there aren't enough priests. No, we lay people have to do it because we're baptized members of Christ, because we have the light of Christ, and because that isn't given to us as purely our own private enjoyment. Like, think about it this way. Think about it like a, a chain. You've got a link in the chain. Every link is connected to the one before it. And so the Gospels passed down from the first century to you and to me. Someone passed it on to someone who passed it on to someone. They passed on the message. They passed on the teachings. They passed on the scriptures themselves. And this faith was cultivated in an individual and personal way from generation to generation for the last 2,000 years. That's how the faith has been transmitted. Well, you and I are links in the chain. And we have to choose, are we going to let the chain that has carried on for 2,000 years stop with us because we don't feel comfortable sharing the faith? Or are we going to let it continue? So is this something that we're called to do as lay people to continue this evangelization? It explicitly is. So uh, St. John Paul II, as we've mentioned before, has an entire encyclical dedicated to the role of the laity. And one of the things that he talks about there is that the mission of the church is to evangelize. Like without evangelization, the church doesn't have much reason for existing and quickly won't exist. But then he talks about the role of the laity within that. And especially within the context of the new evangelization, which just means the evangelization of previously Christian places and previously Christian people, Mm -hmm. which is a unique challenge compared to evangelizing somewhere that's never heard of the gospel. Right. And he says, at this moment, the lay faithful, in virtue of their participation in the prophetic mission of Christ, are fully part of this work of the church. Their responsibility in particular is to testify how the Christian faith constitutes the only fully valid response, consciously perceived and stated by all in varying degrees, to the problems and hopes that life poses to every person and society. This will be possible if the lay faithful will know how to overcome in themselves the separation of the gospel from life, to again take up in their daily activities in family, work, and society an integrated approach to life that is fully brought about by the inspiration and strength of the gospel. And then he says to the laity, do not be afraid, open indeed, open wide the doors to Christ. In other words, if we're going to evangelize the workplace, if we're going to evangelize society, that's going to be done in no small measure by these individual encounters with Catholics who are on fire for their faith and live 
their work life, live their political life, mm-hmm. live their personal life in a way that's animated by the gospel. You can't have a radical segregation where God gets Sunday and the world gets Monday through Saturday or where God gets after hours and the boss gets nine to five. Mm-hmm. God gets 24 seven or you're not doing the Christian thing to the full. Can you give us some examples about what this JP2 calls this an integration of a way of life? How does that, what does that look like in our day-to-day life? How do we use Christ's example of discipleship in our own daily life and interaction with others? So again, I think small steps are really key here. I mean, on a big level, you want to never be ashamed of your conduct at work or your conduct during the work week or at, on Friday night or whatever the case is. If you're living in a way that you wouldn't be proud of, people knowing about at church, <laughs> you're probably living in a way you're not going to be happy about at the last judgment. Mm-hmm. And so the first step is just to live in an integrated way. People should know that you're a Christian. And they should know you're a Christian because of your whole manner of life. Now, there are two extremes. One extreme is to make it all about what you say. The other extreme is to de-emphasize what you say so much you never have to have hard conversations. (laughs) Both of those extremes are wrong. Mm -hmm. Virtue stands in the middle of the two of them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Virtue is the mean, we would say. Yep. So in terms of small steps, I would say individual investment in friendship is a great way to have this conversation very naturally because it's you know jp2 is not saying it is your duty to go knock door to door in every cubicle and every office in your workplace Mm -hmm. and go and tell them about jesus christ now maybe for a small handful of people and uh, amen you know bravo if that's what you're called to that's tremendous yeah but more likely that isn't how you're called to live out sanctity and moreover that's probably not going to be the most effective way of leading others to christ I mean, there are religions like Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, like the Mormons who do the door-to-door knocking. And most people are not saying, wow, I I really want to know more about that. I'm really impressed. Mm -hmm. Right, because the missing aspect there is that relationship. Like, they can knock on your door and it can be the same set of missionaries every, you know, two weeks for six months. But you still don't know them. You still don't walk through life with them. Right, and if you do convert, it's probably because... You got to know them yep. because you got to share some life with them. Exactly. Because there was some sort of encounter of saying, okay, yeah, let's walk on this journey of life together. Mm-hmm. And so Pope Benedict Sixteenth talks about it really beautifully. He says, as human beings, we are there so that God can come to people by way of other people. He always comes to people through people. So we too always come to him through other people who are being led by him and whom he himself meets us. And opens us up to him. In other words, if you think about the whole history of Christianity, the way that Jesus entrusts the gospel to a group of people who write down the New Testament, who proclaim the gospel on the streets, who bring the gospel to us, every one of us comes to Jesus through other people. Right. And the same mission continues through you. We should be leading other people to Jesus just as we were led through other people to Jesus. There's something deeply human about that. We're made for relationship. We're made for belonging. And so this is something that should be very exciting, very invitational. Pope Francis talks about this too. He uses the phrase, the art of accompaniment, to describe this reality. He says that the church will have to initiate everyone, priests, religious, and laity, into this art of accompaniment, which teaches us to remove our sandals before the sacred ground of the other. The pace of this accompaniment 
must be steady and reassuring, reflecting our closeness and our compassionate gaze, which also heals, liberates, and encourages growth in the Christian life. In other words, foundational to all of this is this recognition that you're made in the image of God and so is your neighbor, and that you're made for eternal glory and so is your neighbor. And if you start these conversations at work, with your buddies, at home, with that in the background, that should impact how you approach, how, how you approach them even with patience. Because sometimes, you know, you're going to find someone who's like that messy room we talked about before, whose life is a total mess. And it's easy to get discouraged or impatient and just say, why are you not changing? Uh-huh. Or why are you not changing as fast as I want you to? Mm-hmm. And so the art of accompaniment isn't about apathy. It isn't about just following them into perdition. But it is about recognizing that they're on a journey and joining them on that journey to guide them towards Jesus. Right. This is the opposite of a six-week program. There is no set timeline for your accompaniment with other people. Right. I mean, you just can't force. In the same way that if you said, I'm going to date you for three weeks, after which point we'll know whether we're going (laughs) steady, and then we'll have six months to determine if we're going to get engaged. Like, that would be such an abrupt and artificial... Mm -hmm. Uh, needlessly so kind of way of approaching an authentic human encounter. And so, thanks be to God, most of us have the brains not to do anything like that. So when we hear this term, like we're we're called to be missionaries, we're called to have this missionary discipleship, the knee-jerk reaction can be, wait, I don't don't have time for that. Like, I do not have time to invest in all those people. I, I have a family. I am living out my vocation. So how can we not be overwhelmed by this call to evangelization. Yeah, Mother Teresa has the line that all the work is only a drop in the ocean. But if we neglect to put in that drop, the ocean will be less. You know, you think about someone like Mother Teresa and you think, what an amazing amount of work she did in her life. Mm -hmm. But she was able to see, well, this is just a small percentage of the poor in one city in like the largest or second largest a country on earth, it would feel very much like a drop in the ocean. Yeah. There's a handful of people in Calcutta whose lives she was able to directly touch. But all of us know that, of course, the impact went way beyond that. She inspired so many and got so many other people to join her in mm-hmm. that that she was able to touch many, many more people than she'd ever expected to kind of touch on her own. And so this one drop in the ocean uh, made a tremendous amount of difference. And moreover, This is where the ocean drop analogy kind of falls flat. This drop inspired other drops. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get a whole ocean from. If conversion is about friendship with God and friendship with others, and then empowering them to spread that, you know, lighting their candle with a sense that they should light someone else's candle, that can be done. You don't have to get everyone in the church, right? You don't have to uh, get everyone at your work converted. That's more than you can hope to do. And if you look at the apostles, if you look at Jesus himself, at the end of their life, how many people had really converted? So Jesus doesn't, as far as we can tell, convert the Mm 5,000. You've got these occasional encounters with huge numbers of people. We don't find those people on Calvary. We don't even find all the apostles on Calvary. True. We find a small handful of people. And then we find people like Peter, who the, the difference had been made. There's this setback, and when he's turned back, he can strengthen his brethren. So this small group 
Acts 1 tells us there are 120 people together in the upper room at Pentecost. That's what we're really dealing with. 120 people that then, in a very short span of time, spread the proclamation of the gospel across the known world so that today Christianity is by far the largest religion in the world. Right. This this isn't a daunting invitation or commandment to evangelize your disciple 45 people within your lifetime or to work 350 people through a bible study by the time that you hit 60 it's an invitation to invest in a few and then through that culture of invitation to invite them to do the same with other people in their life and if you're not doing that and maybe it's within your own family Mm -hmm. maybe it's within your what we'd say affinity group like your group of friends etc but if you're not doing that at all you're just not really living out the Christian life yourself. Because Christianity has two great laws. Love God and love neighbor. And if you don't love your neighbor enough to share God with them, then it seems like you're failing to live out at least the second great commandment. And since God's the one who asked you to do it, arguably failing to live out the first one. Uh, St. John talks about this as the, the whole mission. He says at the beginning of his first letter, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. So Christianity really is a religion of fellowship. It's not a one-on-one, just me and my own personal Jesus without having to worry about the rest. If the church is the body of Christ, we don't get to decapitate Jesus, trying to separate the head from the body. We have the head and the body, and that's good, because it means we get to have this fellowship to build each other up. Uh, Benedict XVI again. He says, Thus, this twofold communion with God and with one another is inseparable. Wherever communion with God, which is communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is destroyed, the root and source of our communion with one another is destroyed. And wherever we do not live communion among ourselves, communion with the Trinitarian God is not alive and true either, as we've heard. So think about that. If you have a shared faith, there's a level in a relationship you can get to. You just can't get to otherwise. Mm -hmm. So in a real way, this notion of being authentically friends and companions with other people, and this notion of being authentically friends with God through prayer, through grace, through the sacraments, these are interconnected and ultimately inseparable. That you can't live one and not the other because it'll it'll put a limitation on how much you can grow in either direction. Mm-hmm. When you think about your friendship with someone who you're really good friends with or your best friend, there's a chance that your other friends probably know that they're your best friend because you just talk about them. Or they you bring them up in conversation or you say, you know, I was sharing with my best friend or, you know, their name. And there's a connection there. And so if you have that deep intimacy with Christ and you have other friends... A, they should know that you're friends with Christ in that deep, intimate way. But B, they should want that in, that friendship with Christ themselves, too. Exactly. It should be something where your whole life, you know, the word we used before was integrated. Mm-hmm. If you block off your 9 to 5 and no one in your family knows what you do for a living, there's a sense in which that's impeding mm-hmm. the level that they even know who you are right. in some real way. If a big chunk of the day you're gone and they don't really know why or what you're up to, other than, you know, every now and then you get a paycheck. Like, that's... <laughs> there, there's a limitation, healthy. right, mm-hmm. on that relationship. Yep. And so a really integrated life uh, doesn't have the, the same level of barrier there. Right. I'm not saying you have to, like, bring all of your home problems to work. I'm saying you should be the same person 
everywhere you go. And that person should be a Christian. We've been talking a lot about friendship and that integration of the human relationship. Are there stories from the saints' lives that we can look to for good examples for what that looks like? So I think we've mentioned uh, St. Gregory and St. Basil before, Mm -hmm. but I want to talk about them just for a second because I think they do a good job of showing how the vistas, the kind of horizons, really open up when both you and your friend uh, have a, a real love for God. In other words, the reason I think this is important is if you can successfully share about Jesus to the other person, and if they can catch fire, you and them, you'll almost definitely uh, become closer. So St. Gregory, uh, describing his friendship with St. Basil, says, Our single object and ambition was virtue and a life of hope and the blessings that are to come. We wanted to withdraw from this world before we departed from it. With this end in view, we ordered our lives and all our actions. We followed the guidance of God's law and spurred each other onto virtue. If it is not too boastful to say, we found in each other a standard and rule for discerning right from wrong. Different men have different names, which they owe to their parents or to themselves, that is, to their own pursuits and achievements. But our great pursuit, the great name we wanted, was to be Christians, to be called Christians. That's what it looks like, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you have that kind of relationship with another person where you and they are leading each other on to a deeper love of Jesus Christ, where you're holding each other accountable, where you're seeing maybe areas of struggle in the other person's life and being able to offer some support in those places, both of you end up better Mm -hmm. than either of you in isolation. It's this beautiful balance of seeing this big picture, this call to holiness, this name of Christianity that we live And also the beauty of micro-progress, because it starts with small steps, like investing in that friendship between those two saints and encouraging each other and calling things out. Yeah, I regularly hear people say they can't do evangelization, they can't do discipleship in Mm. some way. But it's like, okay, can you love God? Can you be someone's friend? Can you talk to your friend about things that you love and things you think are good for them? Hopefully the answers to all of those questions are yes. Because if you're a human being, the answers to all of those questions are yes. That's how you're wired. Mm-hmm. It's how you're constructed. It's, you're made for a relationship with God. You're made for a relationship with others. And evangelization is really just a recognition of that fact. And saying, okay, who are you? How are you made? Mm-hmm. What is your good, namely, to pursue God, to share God with others? What is their good to know God and to share God with others? And so, yeah, the whole thing with micro-progress here is... That's not daunting. If you think about it that way, if all it takes is being authentically friends with someone else, you don't have to be a whiz kid theological know-it-all. You don't have to have every answer to every problem in their life. Because look, a lot of the problems in their life, they're not even going to be theological ones. Nope. Something's going to happen. You know, a parent's going to die. You don't have an answer to that. No. You don't have a solution to that. But you can accompany them. You can be there with them in it. And in that way, you can be the presence of Christ among them. And so in that sense, I'd say these are really closely connected. Mm -hmm. That changing the world doesn't look like, for most of us, going and touching the lives of a thousand or a hundred thousand or a million people. For most of us, it might look like just 
really investing in a few people, in our families, of course, and in those people who are in our lives in an intimate way. There are big problems in the world, and micro-progress doesn't deny that there are big problems, but it does empower us to make small steps and make great change with those small steps. And success has to start somewhere with that first step. So whether that's investing in your own personal relationship with Christ or finding those people in your life who you can invest in and who you can disciple, just take one small step and start today. Let's close with a prayer. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The Catholic Podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check